If you would turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 3, verse 31, you'll see where we'll be today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing intros or stories because that will come on the back end, as you'll see. Um, We sort of had two weeks of unplanned mission focus um, in one way. It wasn't planned. In another way, God planned it perfectly. Last week, uh, we zoomed ahead in our series in the Gospel of Mark uh, to chapter 6, where Tucker took us to the feeding of the 5,000. And in that story, related it to how God takes small things, our offerings, and then multiplies them for his purposes, and how our work in India has happened through Pastor Guna, starting with giving $15 or $20 a month uh, to this ministry. And now there's uh, hundreds of house churches and, and, and even more just actual church buildings and orphanages and all these kind of things that God has done and that we give him the glory for and that we all get the, the, the benefit and the fruit from as we give our gifts. Um, but this week we're going to go back to Mark 3 um, to pick up where we left off, but we're going to do so kind of thematically. Um, our series overall in Mark's gospel has been, uh, and this is all just to kind of set up, by the way, where we're going to be going uh, today to remember the persecuted church. Um, our series has been called The Way of the Lord in the Mark's gospel, and today we're going to talk specifically about the way of the Lord being the way of the persecuted. Now, that is uh, a little tough-sounding, um, and, and some of you may also just think, uh, this is an unpleasant subject to talk about. And I understand that on one level, that to talk about uh, the inevitability and the, the purpose and the, the fruit of suffering for Christ and, and all that it means to be persecuted, which one man kind of defined it as um, two worldviews that are different allegiances clashing at one another. Um, And so to talk about persecution in our context that's very comfortable is somewhat unnerving for some of us. And I want to acknowledge as well, we've got youth in here, junior high and high school, and I don't want to scare anyone today. But what I do want to do is acknowledge that we've lived in a bubble for a long time in the Western American church that has been very comfortable for us. But it's really not the norm for Christianity throughout the, the ages. And, and in addition to that, it seems now that the cultural kind of uh, tides are flowing in a different direction to where possibly it, within the youth's next generation, um, you could be facing more and more antagonism for following the way of Jesus. Okay, And so I don't want to scare you with that, but I do think there's a purpose in what God's word calls us to do in remembering the persecuted church. And so... Um, we're going to acknowledge as well that this is kind of an in-house topic. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus here today, I want to acknowledge that like, you're not thinking about being persecuted for Christ, but you might, through listening to this, have the question like, yeah, why do people persecute Christians? And I, I want to try to answer that uh, briefly as well, too. So we're going to look in Mark 3, 31 to 35. I'm going to read it, and then we'll kind of dive right in. It says this. And his, Jesus's, mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a great crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother." God's word, amen. Um, You might be saying, I don't see the persecution in this text. 
And that's true. Because what is happening here, and I want to set the scene here in the Gospel of Mark, is that the scenes change rapidly. And there's a backdrop to these verses that we need to kind of build up to. So uh, to get to our text in 331 to 35, there are two kind of background sets that I'd say that we need to look at first, okay? And that's through the, the chapter, chapter 3. So there's two kind of background scenes that will help us understand why this is a text that points us to the way of the persecuted. First of all, the first background is just the building of the kingdom of God, okay? If you look back in verses 7 to 12 in Mark 3, what you're going to see is that um, this Jesus we've been talking about, who came on the scene and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, and preached the good news of himself as the gospel. As he came on the scene, what took place is that people began to follow him. And as he ate with sinners, with people who weren't religious, but hung out with them and they received him gladly, what took place was the kingdom started to build. The crowds started to grow. The success was happening. And in that, um, we have the summary statement that the kingdom is kind of taking shape in verses 7 to 12. And then moving on to verses 13 to 18, we have another type of building happening where Jesus calls out his 12 apostles. His new people, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament, he's going to say, here are my 12 apostles that represent my people. He's calling them, and it says two things, to be with him and then to be sent out by him. So God's new people in the New Testament are going to be built up by being with Jesus, being part of his identity, and then being sent out by him. So that's the first scene. And so in Mark 3, we've got this building taking place. But then we have what leads to the latter part of the chapter. We have the persecution of the kingdom scene. And, and what we see in Mark 20 to 21, I'm actually going to read it because this kind of gets to the point and connects to verse 31. It says this. Then when Jesus went home, after all these crowds, after all naming his 12 apostles, it says he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. So Jesus, living for the kingdom of God, spending his time with all sorts of people, and spending his time pouring into uh, this, this, this new people of his, his 12 apostles, his family actually says that you are crazy. You live in a way that's not normal. That's one accusation. The second accusation in this picture of persecution is in verse 22 to 30. And what you see is that the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. I'm not going to read it all, but they basically say all the works, all the healings, all the power, all the authority that you're showing is from the power of Satan. So Jesus is told here, he as the king is persecuted, told that he is crazy and that he is demon-possessed. Not very nice. But Jesus, we have this background of him being persecuted. The kingdom is growing, but the kingdom is also now starting to take shots. And then in that context, he identifies, verse 31 to verse 35, his new family. Not only, are God, not only is God bringing a people about, not only is God building his kingdom, but God identifies his kingdom as his family. 
He says, it's my mother, my brothers, my sisters, the ones who do the will of God. The family of God are with Jesus. They're sent to do the will of God. He is forming this new people, a new family. And in, in Mark's gospel, we get this idea, this, this picture of the kingdom. It's like the Old Testament where King David was with, uh, with a, a lame man named Mephibosheth at the table and, and a feasting was taking place. It was a picture of the kingdom of God. Here you have a picture of the kingdom, Jesus with his people as family eating this feast. It's like a teaser trailer. We've said that Mark is the action film gospel in some ways. This is a teaser trailer into ultimately what the kingdom is all about. But it's a teaser trailer because it only happened when Jesus was present as the king bringing his kingdom. But it didn't only happen then because of something else that Jesus would do. And that's where I'll tie the two together. That Jesus, as he's persecuted and as he forms this new family, what takes place is that he is giving us a picture of what his ultimate mission will accomplish. He will accomplish with his mission on the cross of dying for sin, of rising from the dead to give eternal life. He will accomplish the boundaries of his kingdom, not being localized to Israel there in this scene that we're seeing and those people there, but for all people and all families of the earth of all time. He's going to fulfill his mission as the king by dying on the cross, by being enthroned. And listen, the way he does that is by being persecuted. Maybe you haven't thought of Jesus this way in a while, but Jesus was the persecuted king. Look at what Acts 2, 22 to 24 says as it reflects back on the cross. It says, as Peter preaches, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was killed and persecuted. We serve a king who was persecuted. And he did that to bring about his family, to bring about his kingdom. The book of Hebrews tells us that in doing this sacrifice, in giving of himself, in taking on the wrath of man to praise him and to, to be wrapped around him like a belt, as Psalms say, as he does this, that brings forth many brothers. It's like this congregation of his brothers that he praises the Father for in the Psalms and in the book of Hebrews. And he says, here they all are, my brothers, based on what I've done on the cross. And so in that note... In that way, Jesus has made his family, this picture we see in Mark 3, blood-born, blood relatives, very real, very truly, not a euphemism, not a figure of speech, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. We are truly a family, literally related by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, three quick applications or before I invite up our special guests because really they are the illustration today. First of all, this isn't a comfortable topic, but remember, here's what I want to say. First of all, there's three remembers. First of all, remember, if you're persecuted, believers, you are following the way of Jesus. Remember when Jesus is there and he's 
called crazy and he's called demon-possessed in Mark 3, as we read, what takes place is what you often don't notice is that there are all of his people there with him at the table. And what does that say by implication? If you're with Jesus, you're a bit kooky yourself. You're crazy. If you're with Jesus, you're probably under the influence of some demonic power. And so maybe you, like Jesus, have experienced this at various points in your life. Maybe you're a new believer and people are saying, why are you doing this thing? following Jesus. Maybe people in your life, maybe even your family are saying, you're crazy to do this. You're crazy to follow Jesus. Second of all, maybe people from your previous tradition or your religion, they say like, you do God differently now. That's evil. That's not what we've learned from God. That's not our tradition. And what I want you to know is that from this text, we can say it's totally normal, your experience. It's normal to think, for people to think you're crazy. It's normal for people to think that you're maybe demon-possessed if you're following Jesus Christ because that's his way. In fact, John 15, 18 says this, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. And then the Bible also gives a very clear promise that we don't always want to receive, but perhaps would help us count the cost of following Christ. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, first of all, remember, believer, persecuted. You are following the way of Jesus. Look, as Hebrews 12 says, unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him despised the cross, you know, and, and, and endured the cross, excuse me, despising the shame for the joy set before him that you would be a part of his family. And in seeing him, you can endure, you can bear that hardship, you can continue to follow Jesus Christ. Now, I'll just say this, that it's so normal, 80% of all religious persecution in the world today is against Christians. One article in The Spectator in the UK newspaper said this, that the global war on Christians remains the greatest story never told of the 21st century. I could tell you story after story after story after story. I'm not going to because we have people here to do that today. But I will say this, that it's a normal aspect of life for so many people. The way of Jesus is the way of being persecuted. And so that's why today what we're going to do is we're going to, our last application, remember our brothers and sisters who are mistreated. Turn to Hebrews 13 for one more scripture before we invite our dear family of God up uh, with us. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, let brotherly love continue Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though though you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Here's an application of the way of Jesus being persecuted way, and that is just as the Hebrew church at one point had faithfully ministered to people in prison in Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, we are now told that they're tempted to turn back from their own persecution and not even remember what this is all about. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, look, let brotherly love continue. Let us be the family of God that he purchased by his own blood. And here's one application amongst many in Hebrews 13. Just remember these people. You know, so easy to forget 
the pain and suffering of others. But when you remember, it does something to you. It, it changes you. It works a grace of God into you. And so all over the world, our brothers and sisters are mistreated. And it says here, since you're also in the body, you need to remember this. Uh, uh, just a quick thing before I move on. Um, I got a cold this week, okay, and also known as man flu. Um, and if you are a, a wife of a man, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we are babies, okay? And, and it just served to remind me how weak I am when such a little thing comes along like a, a man flu and makes me feel so disempowered, so wimpy, so uh, unable to do things, so grumpy, all these things that, that really are ungodly in some ways and also just a part of being weak and broken as in the body. How much more so somebody who has been imprisoned and beaten and mistreated should we remember the reality of what's happening to the body? Sometimes we hold up missionaries or the persecuted church as if they are unicorns or some form of creature that is not human beings. But they're in the body just like you are. And so today we have the, the privilege to remember them. I mean, I can remember guys like a guy named Wasun who was an Eritrean who I met in the streets of Rome one time, and he had nothing but a duffel bag on his back. And he asked simply, could I store my duffel bag in your bookstore while I take care of some things? And he told me how he had been, uh, got out of Eritrea in a barrel through North Africa to get to Italy because he was persecuted for his faith. <coughs> I remember a guy named Emmy from Rwanda who moved to England when I was there, and he um, because of all the genocide against the Christian people, had to flee his entire country. And he ate a meal with us in our home and just said, this is amazing, the type of brotherly love and this amount of food I've never seen before. And, and he was so empowered. But he actually taught me how to pray because persecuted believers, I'll tell you what, they know how to pray and depend on God. He said, Pastor, let's pray. And he began to pray for an hour. And I thought, like, what is this guy doing? And taught me a lesson. But you don't have to listen just to my stories. We have an opportunity today, a privilege, to hear the stories of two dear sisters in Christ who have been um, persecuted simply because they love Jesus Christ. And so the entire rest of our time is going to be uh, hearing from a sister Nagme Panahi and also Miriam Ibrahim, uh, Nagme was from Iran originally and, and went there. And then uh, Miriam, uh, she is from the Sudan originally. And so um, would you guys help me please to honor our sisters in their bodily presence here with us as we remember the persecuted church through them, Nagme and Miriam, as they come up. And we're going to hear their story. Well, thank you, Nagme, again, joining us. Um, just brief introduction. Nagme and I know each other from 2001 when she was going to uh, leave from Boise, Calvary, Boise, to go to the Middle East and really start a gospel movement of underground churches. Uh, my wife and I were getting ready to leave for Italy, which is a little less dangerous. Um, 
Uh, but I remember, and this is, I, I confess this to you first service, I remember when my wife came home from Bible study and said, hey, Nagme is going to go back to, go to Iran. And I just thought, like, is she crazy? It's just the same thing that I was saying earlier, um, which was really hypocritical because my family was saying the same thing about me, taking my young wife to Italy uh, as a missionary, uh, in, in, even in that country. And so, Nagme, I just appreciate you so much. Thank you for um, just your long faithfulness in the Lord and, and being part of what God's done. Um, thank you for your connection to us as a body so that we get to be involved. And then also now through Miriam, your friend. And so maybe you could just kind of... Um, Kind of tell us about this connection and introduce yourself to back to the body if, if there are people that don't know you as well and, and whatnot. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, well, I appreciate our church caring for the underground church and the persecuted church. I don't think a lot of people here know that our church has been at the forefront of the revival that's happening in Iran. So 20 years ago, 20-some years ago when we knew each other and I was in, with your wife, Went and Mindy, in a Bible study when I, we were five years old, uh, <laughs> it was college age. So, but um, I think I was a little crazy because in your, when you're 20 some years old, you think you're invincible. And so I just felt the call of God to go to Iran again. I had been a, I had escaped Iran as a Muslim uh, when I was young, and now I was returning as a Christian. And so. Um, and our church sent me off as you guys were sent off to Italy. And um, what started was one of the largest house church, underground church uh, in Iran right now, was started 20 years ago from this church in Boise, Idaho. So, um, so I don't know. I, a lot of Praise you God. don't know this because we can't talk about what happens in closed countries. So a lot of you guys don't know the testimony of the crucial role this church in Boise has played in the darkest place in the world. And um, so I, when I, uh, there was a season when I was advocating for the persecuted church. Um, I met Miriam when she had just been released from Sudan. She was holding two-month-old Maya, her daughter. Uh, Kirk is going to, uh, you guys are going to learn more about her story, but she was on death row in Sudan and she had an option. They, they told her, you go free if you say you're Muslim. But if you uh, continue to stand on your belief in Jesus, you're going to get the death penalty. She refused to deny Christ, even though as a mother, she, they put her nine-month-old with her in that horrible prison in Sudan. Um, she did not deny her faith, and they gave her uh, death by hanging. And uh, they were going to give her son away to an orphanage and be raised by Muslims. So she did not, she's going to share more of what she went through in that time, but she did not deny Christ. They were going to hang her. And before they hanged her, they tested her. They did all the sorts of tests and they found out she was pregnant. So the only thing that kept her, they, they wanted to wait until she gave birth and then give both of her kids away to an orphanage to be raised as Muslims, and then they were going to execute her and by hanging, kill her by hanging. And so I begged Miriam to come and speak at our church. <laughs> she comes from the East Coast. She's one of my best friends, and she's a true example of just loving Christ no matter what. And um, I think Kirk will share more later her story now in Sudan Christians cannot be sentenced to death 
anymore and women are allowed to wear what they want to wear. A Christian woman don't have to wear the hijab. They don't have to wear head covering. Because of her story, the law has now been changed. So, Amen. I think we have a, a couple pictures of that time. You can just see that it's a, it was a worldwide kind of thing on CNN, um, just the pictures that took place when your story kind of came out, Miriam. And um, I, I got the chance to read, and, and there'll be a few copies out there, but you can also get it online. It's uh, for donation. It's free. But the, her book called Shackled, her story is in written form. And so if you want to know more, you can do that or go online and, and, and get that. But um, Miriam... As I read the book, as I looked at it, as I've heard you a little bit already, I just, um, it's just remarkable to me that you um, were able to stand fast in the face of that kind of persecution. So could you explain a little bit more of, you, you were on death row in Sudan, um, and I, I take it that that was just because you came from a Christian family. You were a Christian um, in one sense, um, though your father was Muslim. And they, they said you should have been a Muslim. And so that was kind of the, the rubbing point there that they, they said, like, you should not be a Christian and you need to change. And you just stood firm. Like, what was it like to be in front of a judge saying, no, you're going to have 100 lashes and death by hanging? I mean, tell us about that experience. Thank you um, for coming and thank you for having me. I really um, feel so much joy and I'm blessed to be here. And um, yes, I'm originally from Sudan, you know, Sudan is Islamic country. So I was born for a Muslim and Christ Muslim father and Christian mother. That's the background of my uh, case and how I ended up in jail. But by the law in my country, children who are born um, for a Muslim father must follow their father's religion. So that's why um, I was raised by my mother as a Christian. So and, uh, I didn't have much connection with my father. It's a long story back, but when I grew up, they came after me. And um, at that time, I already married to a Christian man as well. So by the law, as a Muslim girl, I'm not supposed, I'm not allowed to marry to non-Muslim man. So I was handed to the police. I uh, was charged, uh, I was married as a church, but my marriage was considered invalid by the law. And um, that's why I was charged with adultery and apostasy. Apostasy is um, refusing Islam, I mean, um, to accept Islam or <coughs> abandoning Islam. So um, my sentence was 100 lashes and death by hanging. And uh, my children in this situation are considered illegitimate children. So they have to be taken care of by the um, Islamic uh, government and they be put up in the orphanage and um, raised as a Muslim. So as Nagma mentioned, um, it was very, um, uh, I can see like appearance is bad situation and there's so much fear um, when you know you can scare mother by anything more than telling her, or any bit, someone, you can't scare them more than tell them, I will kill you, and I will take away your children. So, but uh, for me, I do have full understanding, because as a believer on that country, we face persecution in many different forms. But what I experience, as my priests and nuns describe it to me, is that's exactly what the Bible tells us about the persecution. 
It is not because how bad person you are. It's not because, as I said, you are a terrible person, you bad, you deserve to die. You are unclean, you are infidel. But it because of what you stand for, and I stand for Christ. So that's why I have so much, you know, faith knowing that God knows me, he sees me, and um, I'm not alone. So, yeah. yeah. Amen. So they said that your marriage is invalid and that you should have been a Muslim. So you're adulterous and also you are an apostate. And so for that, you, you, were, you were sentenced to death. You said, I think in the first service, we, I, I love the verse that you shared as you stood before the judge. Will you tell us again what verse that was that um, the, the Holy Spirit kind of put in your mind as he's kind of like giving this pronouncement of your judgment? Yes, um, I remember that because, you know, I, you know, God's word is so important. You know, this is, um, I mean, what we stand for. So, uh, because they fear that they try to put on my heart, like, you're going to get killed, we'll kill you. So, I see, like, fear of a man. It's Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of a man proved to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Even though they think hey, you are in our hand, we're going to kill you. There's a lot of things. There's too much detail on my story happened inside the prison. And it appeared like they are in control of my life because I'm in their hand. But I know that I'm in God's hand. And one of the things that's actually the reason the judge decided to send me to jail that day on Christmas Eve. Because he said, I want to save your life. Because we want to offer you this shihada and just go free. Just... Do whatever you want, but you have to say shihada. But when I say, for me, when I say shihada, and I say I deny Christ, so that's not a negotiable situation for me. So um, he would, uh, I told him, like, my life is not in your hand. It's in God's hand. So it makes the judge really angry that day. Yeah. The shihada, when you say the shihada, you're converting to Islam. So you refuse to say the shihada. And you actually went to prison on Christmas Eve with your son, yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would be like. I mean, I think you said it, but maybe kind of elaborate more. If I think about my family, you know, my kids and someone harming them. And, and you know, as you stand there, that by standing up for Christ, I've got my son, Martin, my my baby coming Maya, um, what's that like to kind of count that cost, thinking about the effect on your children um, for standing for Christ? So um, it's appeared really bad because, you know, involved my children. But um, again, it's really a spiritual connection that I have at that moment. I have full understanding of why I'm here and, and what's going to happen. So, and I do, as a believer, trust that God sees me and he knows exactly what's happened. And, and I, do, I does really, and I mean, trust God's plan. So it, my trial is trials of purpose for what I experience inside prison and what I have to witness through the trial, the court, you know, and how so much injustice I have witnessed. So, and I got to know that, you know, the plan I have for you is to give you hope and future, not to harm you. I knew that God has something for me and my children. Because either way, even if I stayed alive and went with that Muslim family, I'm not, I, I immediately face honor killing. So, 
I mean, and now my children are no longer be with me. So it was very bad situation. And through the process of the trial, I thought that my children would be able um, to be sent off overseas or somewhere, someone would, you know, to raise as a Christian. There's so much things going on in my mind, but I do really know God have plan for me and for my children. I knew that. It's just love, the, the Spirit just gave you that sense that God is going to carry you and your family and His plan is going to prevail. I love that. Um, what, what else? So I, I think about all the things that we kind of rely upon, like this church gathering right now. That's taken away. You're in prison. I think about like Bibles that we have in our hands um, or on our iPads or whatever it may be. Um, did you, like, how did you get through that time? How did the, the, the months and the, 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 you know, the years in prison there, how did that, how did you get through and how was your faith kind of fostered? Did you have a Bible? Yeah, tell us about that experience and how you kept alive spiritually. So before I go in the beginning of my trial, I have to talk to my priests and my nuns and they explain to me, like, here is the scripture, that's persecution what you're facing and what it is. It, and it's written in the Bible, we face persecution. And so that's your term, Miriam, that's what's happened to you. So I do, I felt like I really needed to have my Bible with me. And, it, and the prison was really, I was surrounded by God. My, I was kept, you know, shackled. Um, one of the things that they search, like when I go to the, when I'm waiting on the trial, or go to court and come back to prison, they would search, the guard will search in my hair and even on my son's diaper. Like, because in that situation, I was told I'm crazy. You know, you don't know what you're doing. What's the decision like? You're an unstable mother and you're an unstable person because you're saying, we told you we're going to kill you. Or you just say a word and you'll be free. So, and I like the songs that, you know, my freedom, I also I always say this, in Jesus, we have so much freedom, you know, when we, our beliefs are the Christian. So I did, uh, I was able to smuggle my Bible. Actually, I have it with me because I saw the question. <laughs> Actually, a Muslim, a Muslim girl smuggled it for you. Or, yeah, or... so I bribed the prison guard. You see, it's crime, but I did it. <laughs> So I bribed the prison guard and the um, officer, the court officer. So I, my book is in Arabic and English, my Bible, and it said, the book of life is Kitab al-Haya, book of life. So, and I was, I kept this, it's my prison Bible. I mean, some of the reasons those papers are being cut because sometimes I have to cut page and hit it on my hair somewhere. When I go to the bathroom, I will read through because I can't, I have, the Muslim girls who kept it for me, she have to hide it somewhere. She don't keep it in her belongings. So that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, that's why now I always appreciate churches and, and missionaries and ministries that support the, the underground church and, and, and bring the gospel to, to the new believer because when they have access, even though when you pray to the persecuted church, I ask people to say, pray for them to have access to God's word, because that's the weapon we fight the injustice and the, and the enemies, and this is the what we rely on, and and uh, carry in our heart, you know. So, 
I, I just want to say the girl that helped her, because when she would she helped her hide the Bible, she ended up becoming a Christian, the Muslim girl. Yeah, she's a trafficked girl from Ethiopia, and I connected to them because my mom from Ethiopia, so <laughs> they speak the same language. I hear their word, and I um, connected to that way she mm. being treated. I just also want to say what she said about the importance of getting the Bible to restricted, closed countries. Uh, so important. But I want you to know as members of this church that this church plays a crucial role in getting Bibles into countries like Iran. I, I know many of you don't know that, but every day there's Bibles going in areas where no one has ever heard the gospel because of uh, of just the ministry that has has come forth from this, the body of Christ here in Boise, Idaho. So you are technically Bible smugglers. <laughs> All right. Yes, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Those, those laws of man kind of lose their point at that, at, at that time and place because um, we have to obey God rather than men. And so appreciate that, love that um, honorary title as a Bible smuggler. Um, <clears throat> so... Miriam, kind of last question. Um, as you have kind of come out of, uh, you know, Sudan, you've been in America now for years. Um, you've now seen full circle. Now you're watching other people come to get their freedom as well. Nagme was just able to help resettle some persecuted believers from Iran to Canada like, how, how does that make you feel as you remember the persecuted church, as you are involved in this story, and it continues to multiply and serve sisters and brothers as they come out of those countries, too? Like, how do you, how, what did you feel when you saw these believers being resettled to Canada? Um, so, I, when I left Sudan, actually, I really uh, wasn't um, comfortable leaving my country. It was very challenging. So, and actually, I didn't mention that I was a businesswoman during that time, and I have my business and everything. When I go through the trial, I was, everything was taken away from me by the government. Because when, you, when you become a, in countries like Iran and Sudan, you become a Christian, you lose all your property. The government confiscates everything you have, and you're, so you, have, you become, uh, you, you lose all of your rights. So all of your house, your business was taken by the government. Yeah, they, they, and they were happy because we take everything away from me and I was allowed to leave the country. So um, I remember that day when I'm leaving at the airport, they, we took everything away from you. Now you, you have nothing, you go. So, and I was smiling because for me, that's material things doesn't matter. There's one thing that they are after and they weren't able to take away from me and with his Christ, from my heart, from my life, and from my children's life. So, but when I come to the state, I realize that I have so much responsibility toward that thing, you know. For me now, I'm in a new life and new country, and I have freedom, more freedom to, you know, to go to church and to speak and do things that are different. That's why I, um, and, and I get to realize, again, my trial are not for harm. To me, it's trial of purpose. So uh, I was able to go places, like people are afraid even to mention about the security church, to talk about what Christian 
face. When you talk about Christian, there's so much red, you know, line under what you say and what you don't say. But I was able to go to places like that and speak about the persecution. And, and, and like, not just my story, it's the story of many believers around the world. So when Nagma, Nagma involved so much with, um, with underground chair, so when it's come to witness injustice and how really persecuted people are treated, I feel responsible doing that because we are the body of Christ. When one body suffer, we all suffer. And it came to me like I was in place that people pray for me and advocate for me. So like um, when um, there's a verse in Acts say, uh, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church earnestly prayed for him. So like, you know, this is, when we talk about the story of persecuted church, we go to the, the scripture, like in real life. You know, it's a witness for them, so. Amen. Yeah, thank you. And I think that's a good uh, point to kind of transition. Um, I wish we could hear just half an hour, hour more of your story. But um, just like I said at the beginning, this book, Shackled, is her story. Um, it's out there. There's a few copies, or you can get it online. It's all free or donation-based. And basically, if you do give a donation, it goes to support women who are oppressed um, in the, these countries. In, yeah, 100% so, of, uh, I think they're almost out of this books, but you can get it online. Uh, it's Again, it's free. If you want to give donation, do it. If you don't want to, you want to just pick it up, do it. There's other books. Uh, there's children books that teach children about persecution. It really, uh, you know, it's kind of like the uh, Jesus Freak books for children. Uh, and so they're out there. And they, 100% of what, Back to Jerusalem is one of the ministries that has helped, um, you know, um, we work with that has helped women in Iran start businesses, women in Somalia, in Afghanistan, they're doing stuff. So um, 100% goes straight to uh, the oppressed women and children, especially in closed countries. Um, so, yeah. So, um, now, separate from that, like we have our ministry to the underground church in Iran. Um, uh, could you give us a quick update and then tell us about what happened and show some pictures maybe yeah. about uh, resettling some of these believers because yeah. it's great. Yeah, so Back to Jerusalem is a ministry we work with, but we also have, if you go to the website, you go to Calvary Chapel website, you go to Missions, Middle East, you'll kind of, there's not a lot we can talk about because it's, a very, uh, it's just that people would get endangered. But I can share this story. I think the photo's up. So uh, this girl that's kind of wearing the purple, I think, on the far left, um, she, when she, she had grown up in, in the uh, kids, I knew her when she was nine years old and she just accepted Christ. And uh, she grew up in, in our kids' ministry. So imagine a kid you had served. Now she had grown up. And they arrested her. She was, at the time they arrested her, she was discipling 250 women. Uh, and they tortured her. They put her in solitary confinement. Uh, she went through, she, when she came out, she was a different person. I did not. It was, uh, it was very emotional. I was resharing that story in Canada to some of the believers, and her mom couldn't stand it because those moments where this girl that came out of prison all the things that had happened to her, the torture, the solitary confinement. 
And so I contacted Miriam. I said, this girl's like a daughter to me. How can we help her? How can we get her out? Finally, we were able to get her out on bail. And I sent Miriam the video where she walks out of prison. She's broken, but she's out on bail. And Miriam, when I sent her the video, she was East Coast in Virginia. She would start crying. She remembered when she first got out of prison. So we found a way we smuggled her into Turkey. But in Turkey, she wasn't safe. The Iranian government was trying to arrest her and take her back. Uh, and um, only a few days ago, she arrived in Canada. Those women... And I was there to greet them. Those women are the face of the persecuted church. Uh, in Iran and in a lot of countries like China, it's the women that are taking the gospel, like the Samaritan woman. They're the evangelists. They're the ones that are being tortured, uh, arrested, in prison, on death row. So our faces is the typical face of the people that are taking. You know, I'm from Middle East. She's from Africa. These are the typical faces you see of the people that are taking the gospel to the darkest places in the world and they're getting arrested. Those women together right now are serving close to a thousand people uh, over now over the internet, you know, and uh, so uh, this is what you normally see. Uh, and, you know, and so the women that are considered a rejected, broken, second class citizens by the Muslim community, you know, just they're the ones that God is giving the. Uh, the, the treasure of taking his word to the darkest places. And I just want to say, you know, uh, one thing I realized when these people landed in Canada, I just, and I went to church for, with them for the first time. They were crying. And I had forgotten they could worship and freely. They could carry their Bible. And I was so touched. And you guys, without knowing, as being part of this church, helped to get these women warriors who have been persecuted, tortured, imprisoned for Christ to safety. And so I just want to say thank you to our church body for caring for the persecuted church. What you are doing here in Boise, Idaho, is making an impact in the darkest places in the world. Iranian government is a bully, is evil, but you know what they're scared of? Their number one threat to their national security. Do you know what that is? Christianity. So they hunt down the Christians, they go after them, but the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. The church keeps growing. So many women have been killed in prison, and men also, but at the forefront of taking the gospel is broken women who are not considered um, strong or they're considered weak and, you know, invaluable. So um, I just want to say this is the face, the girls that you see, this is the face of persecution and, uh, you know, God is doing amazing things through this church body in the Middle East. And a lot of times we can't share about it, but, but we can today and say, yeah. like, just this amazing testimony. Praise God. That's such a privilege. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I want to thank you, Miriam. I want to thank you, Nagme, for your guys' presence here. I love what you said. You said, it's not my story. It's the story of all these other believers. So you are just the bodily presence of our family. And thank you for being our sister in Christ. Thank you for being who you are. Um, it's all God's grace. We give him all the glory for carrying you through that. But we say thank you. And we remember your suffering. We remember the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world. And that doesn't stop. And um, please do go greet these guys out, out in the lobby afterwards. Um, this has been a corporate 
act of obedience and application from Hebrews 13, where we're able to remember those who are mistreated. But please let that continue in prayer for the persecuted church, in uh, being involved and participating in, in what we do through Calvary Boise, what Back to Jerusalem does. Also, um, we're going to take communion right now. And I think it takes on a whole nother, um, another light when we think about this. Uh, and and I'll, I'll ask you to prepare your hearts in this way. Um, even what we're going to do now is, is a privilege because the communion wafer and, and the cup that we have are physically real. There's a story in the persecuted church that says there was some who were in prison and they were next to each other and they were communicating through the walls of their prison. They said, God, we don't have the elements, but we thank you for nothing that represents your body. And so we take nothing to remember, Jesus, what you did for us and how you were broken for us. And Lord, we then, we drink nothing in remembrance of your blood that was poured out for us, washed us from our, our sins, empowered us to forgive others. And I, I want us to prepare our hearts and just realize the privilege to have their presence here with us today, that we are communing with God and communing with our brothers and sisters around the world, and that we have the privilege of actually having real communion elements to represent the body and blood of Jesus.